The title of today's sermon is Kingdom Lifestyle, Righteousness in Action. It's taken from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 14. Let's ask God to guide us in our thinking this morning. Father, we thank you for the blessings of life. We're thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ that encourage us. We're thankful for the Word of God, which has the truth needed to guide us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and is our teacher. Now we ask as we spend time in your Word, Lord, that you would fill us with your desires to follow you, to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, and to imitate him in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the past two months, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And we have another week yet to go in this study. Last week, in the first six verses of chapter 7, we learned that one of the distinctives of a kingdom seeker is that he or she does not condemn nor criticize others. In other words, the proper judgments that a disciple makes is to to discern on how to help others, not hurt them. The first step, however, in the discernment process for any disciple is critiquing one's own life and faults. Jesus pointed out how hypocritical it was to point to to another's minute failings in their life when you have such large failings in your own. As you'll recall, Jesus stated that his disciples are to live above the standard of self-righteousness displayed by the Pharisees. Now, this text that we're reading and studying today cannot be understood in isolation. It must be placed into its proper context. When most people read the Bible and this text, they understand this as focusing somehow on the right way to pray. But I think it would be better to interpret this text in light of the theme of the whole chapter, which is how to avoid self-righteous judgments, how to discern correctly between right and wrong. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, clearly a warning to his disciples then and now to seek holiness, righteousness in their lives. Peter describes this holy lifestyle for us in his first epistle saying, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So living the holy life in a world which is stained by sin means that we must guard our hearts and minds against the things that should deter a holy life. That means we must remain dependent upon the Lord for his righteousness. Now, the the lost man, the natural man, asks in prayer for his own needs to be met. The Adamic nature, after all, always seeks its own way. 
the old nature will bowl over others to get what they want. The question then in this text that we will need to answer is, how can we avoid condemning others and being critical of them? How do I make appropriate judgments? How can I maintain as a disciple an appropriate lifestyle that does not veer off into pride and prejudice? The answer is simple. To be praying that God guide you into make, making right decisions. We pray by asking God for wisdom. We seek direction in his word. We knock continuously on his door that it might be open to us. You see, asking, seeking, and knocking are all synonyms of prayer. A question often asked is, why did Jesus bring up prayer at this point in his discourse? Some see this as an, an interruption in his theme, but I do not believe that it is. Since every disciple is fallen, fallible, and prone to mistakes in human judgment, we must conclude that the Lord Jesus is the only one who makes perfect judgments. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to seek his wisdom, his direction in our life through prayer in order for us to have spiritual discernment. We must ask for it. We must seek it. We must knock until that door is opened unto right understanding of our circumstances in life or the questions that we have. No one can deny. No one can deny that the Jews were praying people. After all, there's an old Jewish saying that says, from your mouth to God's ear. Yet we know that the Jewish people went astray from following and living for the Lord. They never bothered him oftentimes to ask for wisdom and for direction. For example, remember when Joshua had defeated Jericho? We were just there a couple weeks ago. They went on to the next target in conquering the promised land, a city called Ai. AI. However, being a little bit self-confident after their easy victory at Jericho, Joshua and his fellow Jew, Jews failed to take time to pray and ask God for discernment, for direction, for strength. And what happened? The Israelites suffered their greatest defeat in the conquest of the land all because they did not seek God's wisdom. Then there's the tragic figure of Saul. Saul and his army were waiting for Samuel to arrive, the high priest, to offer a sacrifice and prayers before they went to war. Samuel didn't show up in a timely fashion. And the soldiers were starting to get ready to flee rather than fight the Philistines. And growing impatient, Saul chose to offer prayers and sacrifice in the place of Samuel. Saul took matters into his own hands, never really consulting the wisdom, the direction, or the desires of the Lord. Then there was the Jewish leaders during Jesus' day. Jesus labels them as hypocrites. 
whitewashed tombs for many reasons. One of those is that they used prayer as a means to promote themselves and a means unto its own end. Jesus shares a parable about the, about the Pharisees that you all know and love. It's about the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember it? The Lord said this, Some people trust in themselves that they are righteous. And they view others with contempt, judgment. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I'm wonderful, Lord. I pay tithes of, tithes of all that I get. Oh, I'm so wonderful, am I not, God? But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He simply beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, says Jesus. This man went home to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus addresses the hypocrisy of the religious, saying that they have already received their reward in this life. Now, as you know, He delivered this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Kayla and I were just there the other day, a couple weeks ago. A place called the Mount of Beatitudes is where it's venerated at. It's a a bluff that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. There Jesus began with what we call the Beatitudes, or Beatitudes. His standard of righteousness that he sought from his disciples. As I said, Peter summed that up, you shall be holy as he is holy. We are to imitate the righteousness of Christ in our lives. And then he goes on in his sermon to give several areas of examples. He juxtaposes them with the false, fake righteousness of the Pharisees. Those areas, you'll recall, were giving, praying, fasting, accumulation of wealth, and worry. And then last week he added the area of judging. Judging judging. A logical question that needs to be asked based on these standards is this. How good must I be? The standard surely seems to be an impossible place to reach. The biblical answer is, of course, as good as God is. That's the standard. Now, most most disciples, knowing that standard and inwardly knowing that they will never attain it, they try to substitute the standards of men. You know, wear white socks, no beards, keep your hair short, don't smoke, don't drink, and certainly don't go with girls that do. But Jesus is saying that the standard concerning judgment is not doing the right things externally. It's an internal response to others by not condemning nor criticizing them when you are such a great sinner yourself. 
We are not to be dominated by or known for a critical spirit. Disciples of Jesus are to make the proper discernment between both good and evil. That's what making right judgments is about. There are numerous examples of this in Scripture, which I articulated several of them last week, and I will not go into them again. But know that this text, that the disciple is to discern between that which is good and evil. That's what Jesus is talking about. Well, with that as our introduction, let us continue on in the text. Would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7? We pick up with verse 7. And if you need to use the Pew Bible, the text is found on page 963. There we find the Lord continuing. As he commands his disciples saying this, Ask, that's a Greek imperative, it's a command, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, another Greek imperative, and you will find. Knock, another Greek imperative, and it will be opened unto you. The question we need to answer about this verse is, how can we make judges judgments rightly? How can we make judgments rightly? After all, as I said, each of us disciples is burdened with an old nature. That old nature is at war, literally, with the new nature. The Lord's command then to ask, seek, and knock seems to go against the old nature. We usually want to fix things on our own, don't we? We usually think that we have the answers to whatever problem comes our way without consulting the Lord. We instantly know how to fix it, right men? We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because we're Americans who conquered the West and conquered the moon, right? The opposite of asking for directions is seeking the Lord in prayer. Notice in your English text, I'd like you to see this, there's an acrostic formed by those three Greek imperatives. Ask, seek, and knock. Take the first letter of each of those, and what do you have? The word ask. Ask, seek, and knock. Let's begin with the first one. The first letter is A, or ask, and the promise is that it will be given to you. Each of these three commands is accompanied by a promise from our Lord. The Greek grammar is very important here. As I said, each of these is a Greek imperative, which means we are not being asked to ask, seek, and knock. We are being commanded by our Lord and The Greek imperative was written in the present tense, which implies that we're to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't stop! If you want to be a discerner, if you want to make right judgments in this life, then you need to ask God to show you the truth about whatever situation it is in life, whatever conundrum that you find yourself in, from his word that deals with that situation. You see, we as disciples do not possess the answer for every question or every dilemma that should confront us in this life. We need to go to God and ask him for wisdom for that specific situation. James wrote in chapter 3 of his epistle to the very earliest of Jewish converts, the wisdom of God is from above. It is pure. 
It is peaceable. It is gentle. It is reasonable. It is full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. There you go. There you go. However, you should know that this wisdom from God just doesn't come upon you. It comes down from heaven, but it just doesn't drop into your heads. You don't put your pillow, your Bible under your pillow at night, and then all of a sudden, biblical wisdom fills your head. No, you must seek the truth from Holy Writ. It's hard work. It's almost a full-time job. But God commends those. But God commends them. God commends his people that do it. As we read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, now the Bereans, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Seriously, now let me ask you a question. Do you read the Bible every day? Do you read it with eagerness? Or is it a laborious task that you feel like you have to do once a week or once a month or once a year? If that is your attitude, you will never make right judgments in this life. You will be misled and your life will be hopeless and lack joy. I say to the consternation of some that the Christian life is about soaking our minds in Scripture. Literally, the disciple must be brainwashed, in a good sense, by the truth. Out with the lies of the old world system and in with the words of life. The concept of asking the Lord for help in discerning a situation implies a humbleness and a consciousness of one's own needs and dependence upon him and his word. Inherent within that verb, ask, is the idea of the petitioning of an inferior to a superior. God, I don't have the answers. Help me. Give me the answers through your word. Looking at this verse... I'd like you to notice something. Notice the intensity of the Greek verbs as they increased. First we have ask, just talk to. Then to seek, that implies going out and looking. And finally, to knock, keep knocking on that door. We're to move on from asking to seeking to knocking. When we seek, we are adding something to ask. It's action that we add to it. We are, as, we are to ask and then to add the action of seek. We are not to sit around and expect God to answer our prayer. We're to do something about it. The disciple is to ask the Lord for wisdom and then actively seek it in his word. At, at home, when Sue and I are sitting around chatting, discussing, talking, and some question comes up, we will often turn to Google. We'll just say, hey, Google, what films did John Wayne die in? And then Google will give us the answer to the question. You know, you want to do that because you don't want that question to be gnawing at you all night. Oh, what films was it he died in? Did he he die in Iwo Jima? Did he die in True Grit? You want the answer. 
So if you don't have the answer in your own head, you've got to have one of those lifelines, right? In this case, it's Google. Aren't you glad? I thank God. I don't have to turn to a book anymore to find the answer. Or go to the library. Remember those days? Through the Dewey card catalog system, whatever it was, looking for an answer by John Wayne? Today we just turn to Google. Or if you really want an authoritative source, ask Snopes. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a liberal piece of trash. Never, t- never trust a thing Snopes says. They're progressives. The truth is our Lord wants us to ask and seek Him, not Google Him. Because our dependence upon Him pleases Him. In two previous chapters, we looked at several examples of false righteousness as being compared to true righteousness. Jesus drew the disparity between the outward acts of men in worship, remembering giving, praying, and fasting, and hypocrisy by the Pharisees, and the inward attitudes of holiness towards our possessions, towards judging, and towards fasting. His admonition then here to ask, seek, and knock fits perfectly within this context of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, a disciple's alternative to making false judgments is to pray for wisdom. Just don't jump and judge something. Ask God for direction. If we prayed for those right judgments, we wouldn't condemn others or criticize them. So the Lord commands us to ask. Ask him. Seek wisdom. Look in the pages of Scripture. And thirdly, to continually knock on the door. Remember uh, Bob Dylan's song, Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door? Remember that? You might say this is Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Persevering until you get the answer. Now, as a pastor, I've visited many people's homes. I had a lot of different experiences. I know sometimes I'll get to a house and I'll knock on the door and I'll be able to hear people inside. Things will be said like, It's the pastor. Should we just ignore it? (laughs) But if you keep knocking, if you keep knocking, if you keep knocking, they answer the door eventually. The door will be opened. Persistence at anything that is good is good. However, the track record of many believers following salvation is not good. You see, they get into a church and they get settled in. They start feeling comfortable. They're really happy with their salvation experience. They've heard the wonderful grace of God. They've trusted in Christ alone to save them. And then things just continue on at that same pace. And they never reach the point of knowing the Lord deeply and enjoying the abundant life. Why is that? Why is that? I suggest to you because it is because they fail to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. You know, we have a prayer chain here at, at Lacey Chapel, like all churches do. But I find that many people substitute the prayer chain for their actually praying to God. 
and asking for whatever it is that they desire to be answered. They don't pray themselves. When there's a problem in their life, they don't turn to the Bible to seek answers. They turn to someone who they consider has good advice. They'll call Bud. We're instructed to go to God, to ask him to seek wisdom from his word and to keep knocking until the answer is given. Now, that doesn't mean these people don't continue to come to church, show up at Bible studies, and do all sorts of religious activities. But the fact is, many never experience the deeper lives from them. The joy and the peace that God intends you to have because they're not asking, they're not seeking, they're not knocking. They're allowing their life to just flow along as it did before they came to know the Lord. But if you do ask, if you do seek, if you do keep knocking, Jesus promises to his disciples in verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus commands you and me to ask, seek, and knock because he promises that he's going to answer. Isn't that what you want? Answers? That's what I want. Kayla and I were just at a a church in Jerusalem. You've probably seen it before. It's one of the most hysterical, funny uh, plaques I've ever seen on a church. It says on the outside of the church in Jerusalem that is at the Mount of Olives, do not ask any questions in the church. Isn't that what church is for? Asking questions and getting them answered. Going to God for the answers to life, not Washington, D.C. We don't need our problems solved by the government. We have a God who is bigger than the government. Ask, seek, knock, and you will receive your answers. Now, again, ask, seek, and knock are all part of a merism. That's a figure of speech in which one particular thing, in this case prayer, is identified by a number of other words. For example, the human body can be called flesh, bone, and muscle. They all define what the human body is. Jesus uses these three verbs to speak of prayer, to accentuate the idea of persistence in prayer, in petitioning the Father. These three present tense imperatives demonstrate the emphasis on asking him to help you make proper judgments. Persistence is prayer is not to get what we want, but what he wants. The promise that is given in this text is that if you seek, you will find. That if you ask, it will be answered. That if you knock, it will be opened. Now, all three of these present tense verbs are commands. They are promises connected with them, as I said. The verbs of promise, receive, find, and opened, two are in the present tense and one is in the future. 
The first two, receive and find, are in the present tense. If you ask God, if you study the word, you will receive and you will find. And then the future tense of opened means that it will be given to you clearly, direction in this life. His promise to the disciple is that if you ask him about some situation or issue in life, he will give you the answer. If not now, certainly in the future. So keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. These three verbs, this section is not just about prayer. It's within the theme, the focus of judgment. Jesus is saying, if you want the answers to discern the problems of life, then pray to me and it will be given to you. Now he gives two illustrations of righteous judgments in the next few verses. The first of these illustrations begins in verse 9, where the Lord juxtaposes genuine asking against false asking. In verse 9 he says, Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? This is about communication between an earthly father and his son. Its, t- its intent is to show as a model the communication between a disciple and our heavenly father. And it's, the point is, not, is, is hard to miss. No father, no earthly father would substitute a rock for a loaf of bread. See, the, the, the rock that's being substituted probably looked like a round loaf of bread. The intent of the father, maybe, was to play a game, a prank upon his son, to give him a rock in the morning instead of a loaf of bread and then have a ha-ha about it. But Jesus is obviously making the point that no caring, no loving earthly father would ever do something like this to his son. A loving and caring father would never substitute something harmful for something healthy. Could you imagine the son trying to bite into that rock? When the son asks for bread, which is the main staple of life in Israel, no father would give him a stone. The good father never tries to dupe his children. The second illustration found in verse 10 is similar to the first. Jesus says, Or if he, that is the son, asks for a fish, he, the father, will not give him a snake, will he? As in the first example, the father is asked for something. In this case, it's a fish, the main meat staple in the diet of an Israelite. And Jesus says no good father would ever substitute a snake for a fish. Apparently there was a snake that looked sort of like a fish in Israel at the time. I had a friend. Yeah, I know that's probably hard to believe. But I had a friend whose child had a pet fish. I don't recall whether it was a goldfish or whatever kind of fish. But the fish died while the child was at school. And the father decided to pull a prank upon his child. At dinner time, the child came home and the father brought out a covered plate and placed it before his child, who picked up the cover and to his horror, there was the fish cooked and ready to eat. Apparently the kid was traumatized for about 10 minutes. No loving or caring father would ever pull this kind of switch on his child. No human father, even with a sick sense of humor, would deceive his child with some kind of a hurtful trick like that. Jesus asked the poignant question, following the second illustration, 
Will he? We might say, would he? Would an earthly father do this? Would he? That expects, from the grammar, the no answer. He expects to hear a no answer. Our heavenly father, who was characterized by love and caring, would never do this, even if an earthly father would. He is so loving, so caring, and doesn't play games with his children that he would never try to trick you. He's not offering you an abundant life and then pulling it back. It's yours for the taking. Discernment and wisdom are yours for the asking. Both illustrations you see of the bread and the fish lead to the rhetorical question Jesus asked. Would he? So he's juxtaposing here the earthly father against our heavenly father. He's comparing them. Notice the point of this comparison in verse 11. If you then, the disciples, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you that which is good to those who ask him? Wow. Wow. Jesus makes this very personal to his disciples. Are you a disciple this morning? If you are, then this is being given to you. If you then know how to give good gifts to your human kids, how much more does your Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to his disciples? Notice here, the the, the verse begins with the word if. What is that again? A conditional statement, right? And in this case, it could alternately be interpreted as, my brother David said, as since. Since every human being ever created has an evil spirit, except for the Lord Jesus, an evil Adamic nature, the word evil then is not signifying something bad that they're doing, but of their nature. If we as sinful creatures know how to do what is right and good for our children, how much more? There's the comparison that's being made. This is a rabbinical rhetorical device Jesus is using from the lesser to the greater. How much more then, if that sinful man knows how to treat his child right, how much more does your heavenly father know how to treat you right? How much more will he give you the answers that you seek if you just ask, seek, and knock? Notice it says here that your Heavenly Father will give you good gifts in verse 11. It's interesting to look at Luke's account of this. He doesn't say good gifts. Luke defines the term in his recording of this event as the Holy Spirit. He will give you the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of God, of course, is the source of all blessing in this life. It is the Spirit of God who indwells in gifts, infuses, regenerates, equips, comforts, and exhorts. The Holy Spirit even prays for a disciple when he is unable to put the words together in prayer. Looking back at verse 11, notice Jesus uses, uses this verse, this, this example of a rabbinic argument. How much more then? 
We are so lucky. We have the Holy Spirit. Aren't we? Could you imagine living this life, this Christian life, without the Holy Spirit? The Jews did not have the Holy Spirit. They had to wait until the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. What's the point here? Rather than judging others, we ought to pray for them. We ought to ask God for wisdom and how to deal with them. Instead of condemning someone else for doing something that we wouldn't do, we should pray for wisdom and how we are to interact with them. We should ask God to give us the answers. God promises to give wisdom to us if we simply ask. Notice in verse 12, Jesus summarizes this section in chapter 7 with a biblical principle. When it comes to the disciples making right judgments and concerning discerning situations, he says, in everything, that's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want to be treated. Treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is our Lord's instructions on how to live the righteous life. Do you want to live righteously? Do you want to live godly in this present world? Then treat other people the same way that you want to be treated. We call this the golden rule. I'd like you to notice the therefore. This is Jesus' conclusion about his previous teaching. Therefore, based on all of what I've just said, this biblical principle summarizes it. Sums it all up nice and little in a package for you. The golden rule rule. It presents in a nutshell what surpassing righteousness is. We need to exceed that of the Pharisees by treating people the same way that we want to be treated. How did they treat people? With contempt. How did they treat people? Like they were garbage, that they were the most important things on earth. We're supposed to treat people as we would want to be treated. Your Attitudes and behaviors should be distinctive from religious people around us. You should be Christ-like, not religious. There's a difference, a huge difference. Jesus Christ was not religious. Jesus was righteous, and that's why they killed him. Alexander Service, one of the future emperors after the time of Christ over Rome became a believer. And he had this saying, the so-called golden rule, emblazoned in his palace on the walls with gold. We should emblazon this saying on our hearts and minds. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. I can tell you categorically that is not the way that I have been treated as a pastor in evangelical churches in the past 40 years. We've got a bad track record, don't we? Why do you think people don't want to come to evangelical churches? Why do you think our children have left us? Because we treat people with contempt. We criticize. Instead of love and accept, we drive people away. Follow the golden rule. Treat people the same way that you want to be treated. 
Now I'm preaching to myself. The truth is, most people want to live one way and tell other people how to live their lives when they're living it differently. This principle, however, can never be carried out by natural man. You must be redeemed in order to obey this. This is not a biblical principle that's applicable to all human beings. This is for who? Disciples. This text is written to disciples, not to the general populace in the world. They can't do it. They don't have the ability. They do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Only you and I, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, can treat people the same way that we want to be treated. The golden rule. This rule should govern our lives. And I'll tell you this, when you practice it, when you practice this in your life, it reveals the spiritual change that has actually taken place in your life. You're proving, you're validating the words of Christ as you practice the golden rule. But once again, this can only happen in the disciples' life as they are enabled and yielded to the Spirit of God. Then as his disciples, who are asking, seeking, and knocking with good discernment, we don't have to hurt other people. We can actually help them. We don't have to preach at them. We can love them to Christ. But if we choose not to obey, we will become proud and prejudiced against all others that we meet in this life. Jesus Christ wants you to release within your life the care and love that his heavenly Father has for you. We are called to imitate his life, not some religious people that we might know. Be loving and kind as any earthly father is to his own children. Be loving and kind to the children of God that you bump up against in this life and in this world. Why? Because Jesus says the whole law and the prophet rest upon this. This is not something new, just given to the church. Jesus is speaking to disciples under the paradigm of the Old Testament. This is not new. This was given to them as well. Look with me at at verse... Well, let me go somewhere else. Jesus says this summarizes the entire law and the prophets. All we have to do is look back to the Ten Commandments. And the negative Ten Commandments say you shall not kill and you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and so on and so forth. But then there are the positive commands that says you shall love the Lord your God, you shall not take vengeance, you shall not bear grudges against others in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of those biblical principles and truths in the Old Testament, whether they be positive or negative, can be fulfilled as we apply the golden rule to our life. This biblical principle, if we just treat other people the way that we will want to be treated, will make all of those others come to life in our lives. Now, look with me at the basis for judgment. The last two verses we're going to look at this morning in verses 13 and 14. The basis for those judgments that we make that God gives us the answer to our knocking, our seeking, and our asking. Jesus says there are two ways you can follow. 
We're going to look at the first of those two ways this Sunday, and then next Sunday we'll look at three more. Look at verse 13. Jesus tell his, tells his disciples now, I want you to get this, he's talking to his disciples, not lost people, right? He says, enter through the narrow gate. This is not salvation, this is discernment, this is judgment. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who will enter into it. You've been taught your whole life that this is about salvation. It is not. The grammar and the words show us that clearly. It sounds great to preach it, it's just not what the scripture's saying. The statement is often misunderstood as being justification when it's actually speaking about sanctification. Jesus is not telling his disciples how to be saved. They're already believers in him, are they not? Are they not? They're following him, are they not? Are they willing to give up their lives for him? Yes. So as you know, the Lord is teaching his disciples under the dispensation of the law, not the dispensation of grace. They believe Jesus as the promised Messiah. Peter states that Jesus was the complete fulfillment of what God promised, you'll recall. Now back in chapter 5 and verse 1, just to remind you the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it says there. Chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, who would they be? The lost, the ones that just want something from him. He went up to the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. This is Jesus teaching his disciples, not the world. So his teaching is directed to followers of Christ, not people in general. And Jesus was helping his disciples to miss the pitfall in this life of self-deception, which marked the Pharisees as hypocrites. They truly thought that they were righteous because of their good works. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't think you're going to replace one set of religious hypocrites in Israel with another. Don't fall into that trap. You see, we can all be deceived by our own self-righteousness. That's the danger in the church today. How many Christians have you run into that were self-righteous? His disciples were in danger of that. Which side of you, Jesus, will I sit on? The right side or the left side? Remember that? They thought they deserved something. Jesus is warning them, don't become like the religious elites. Just because you know the right nomenclature, because you give assent to the right doctrines, just because you obey the right rules, just because you're religious does not make you righteous. The church is filled with unrighteousness. Jesus shares these examples so that they would know the difference. Now, you might object to the observation that the Lord was speaking only to his disciples. The truth is, there's only ever a small remnant of believers in this world. Why should that surprise you? Only a small minority of people living today are true Christians, true believers, and only a smaller amount of that are actual disciples following the Lord in obedience. The religious world, like the elites of Israel, the 
scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they were entering into the discernment process by the broad gate. They think they knew the answers. They thought they had all of the traditions of men to guide them, and they knew what it was all about. Jesus says that you must go through the narrow gate of his teaching. That is what leads to life. Now, the contrast being made is between an outward righteousness, what one looks like and acts like, versus an inward righteousness that is actually doing the work of God internally. The Pharisees did outward acts of piety. Jesus is instructing his disciples to have an inward change, to become like he is. Again, this is not about justification, but self, uh, but about sanctification. I'd like you to notice the word that is used in this text called destruction. Now, to those who preach that this is justification, they say that this is hell, that those who don't enter the narrow gate are going to hell, right? It leads to destruction. But the word there is not the word for perdition or eternal ruin. The word is apelion, which speaks of ruination. Jesus says that if you do not go through the narrow gate, you will not experience the abundant life here and now. Don't follow men's directions, the Mishnah, the Talmud, or some other man-made commentary. Follow the word of God. The golden rule is the way to make proper judgments. Do you know what followers of Jesus were called following his death, burial, and resurrection? They were first called the way. Follow the narrow way. They were not called Christians. They were called the way. Jesus says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow. That leads to life. And they who find it are few. Jesus is presenting choices to you as his disciples. Choose this day between two choices and follow the correct way, the right path. These two ways contrast with one another. Today we look at the first of two ways. Next week we finish the chapter by looking at two trees, two professions, and two foundations. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, not to the lost world, choose you this day. Again, this is not a new set of choices, but an old one. This same set of choices was given to the Jews. In Joshua 24, verse 14, we read about this choice when Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods of your fathers, serve who they served beyond the Jordan and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Follow the narrow way. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me ask you, were these Jews who left Egypt under the blood of the Lamb, were they saved? Did they believe? The answer to that is yes. That's how they got out of Egypt. If they didn't leave Egypt, they died or were in slavery. Those who left Egypt were believers. Yes, but they never made the promised land. They missed out on the abundant life because they chose wrongly. 
I submit to you today, most Christians today, miss living the abundant life because they choose wrongly. They serve the gods of the Amorites. They serve the god of Baal. Choose for you this day whom you will serve. The word life that's found in this text, zoe, Z-O-E, put that on the screen. In Greek, it means to be alive, to live life. It speaks of the blessings in this life that we can experience here and now. You don't have to wait till then and there for eternal life. You have it now. Experience real life, abundance, peace, joy, happiness, self-control. All of those things that are promised in the New Testament can be yours. But you must choose the narrow way. You must discern between good and evil by seeking God, asking God, knocking until he gives you the answers in your life on how you should live. live. Conversely, the broad way leads to ruination in this life. Jesus says there's only ever a remnant. There's only ever a remnant who live this life. Few are those who find it. The contrast here is between a life of grace and a life of works. Go ahead. You want to be like the Jews and live a life of works? You're going to live a life of damnation, of of ruination, I should say. A life of misery, never knowing my peace and joy. You want to live a life that I have for you? Live Live the grace life. Live the grace life. Paul writes about this, and I close with it. Uh, This is the last verse I'll quote from the book of Romans. Maybe you know it from chapter 11. It says this. In the same way, talking about Israel, in the same way then there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Okay, how do we make this applicable to our lives today? What does this mean for you and me? It begins by being honest with self, making a self-assessment. How am I making judgments in my my life? Am I truly like my Lord? Am I seeking him? Am I asking him? Am I trusting him? Salvation is just not an insurance plan against the fires of hell. It's a new life. It's a new way to live. It's a new experience of peace in this world. There are those who believe in Jesus just to avoid the negative consequences of hell. And they never enjoy the newness of life. That would be a painful choice to make. I urge you to make the right choice. Seek to do his will. Seek to live his life, to be a discerner about the kingdom of God, putting his desires before your own. How do people miss out on that so much? They fail to ask, to seek, and to knock. They ask the question, how does this benefit me, rather than how does this benefit the kingdom of God? That means their choices don't lead to godly judgments, but human judgments, to condemning and criticizing others. Somebody's stomach is growling. Let me ask you, does this describe you? 
I trust not. If it does, know this. You can change. You can change. Ask, seek, knock, and the Lord will answer.